friends, welcome to another episode of the 10 Lost Podcast with East Forest. I'm Mr. Forrest. Thanks for joining us this week. Um, I've got a conversation with Pamela Brinker. She's a psychotherapist who's been in private practice for over 30 years, and she works with a lot of folks around addiction and sort of a unique approach that, I mean, she's dealt with this firsthand in her own family that she talks about. And she's a meditator, yoga enthusiast, uh, but she knows that there's no like one size fits all process and that everything is different, but that love and kindness and that sort of approach is needed for all addiction situations. And so yeah, addiction, I know it's sort of like a term we might be like, oh, it doesn't apply to me. Or maybe it does, of course, but we all face sort of compulsive actions and behaviors. And I'm sure we know people, especially these days, who are going through that. So I think it's a very salient conversation in that way for us to always be sharp and alert for ourselves in the world and, and bringing more consciousness to our actions and how we relate to others. So I think you're going to enjoy the conversation. Um, I do want to say a little thank you to some new folks who came and joined us on the Patreon. Uh, Leah, Amanda, Rachel, Greg, thank you for uh, for supporting and being a part of our council on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash eastforest. Uh, we just did our monthly Zoom council, and I also just shared some really cool unreleased music and demos over there. So check it out and see if it's a way that you would like to support. And otherwise, thank you for everyone who says hello and purchases merch and just help uh, keep the, the, the podcast and, and the music and everything supported. We're working on some things in 2023. One thing is, it's looking like the record I recorded with Peter Broderick, our goal is to get it out in February, so really soon, and that's very, very exciting. Um, so stay tuned, and we'll give you a release date on that. And I believe the signups for Esalen have gone live or are going live any day, so if you're interested in coming out to the Esalen retreat, that's June 30th through July 3rd, uh, head over to eastforest.org, and on the tour or retreat tab, we should be able to uh, point you in the right direction. Okay, thanks again for uh, listening. And we're going to dive into this conversation with our friend Pamela Brinker. Well, Pamela, thank you so much for coming on the show, for taking the time. I'm glad we made it. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here, really. Thanks, Delight. thanks. Mm-hmm. Um. So maybe some folks, just to start, it's sometimes good to give context. If you could just tell us just a little bit about yourself, where you're coming from, kind of, I mean, we can dive into whatever we dive into, but I know there is a particular subject right now you're interested in, but why don't you just tell us a little bit about who you are? Sure. I see myself as a being and a lot of, a lot of us define ourselves by what we do, Yeah. but I don't, I don't like to do that. I see myself as a being who's in constant constant transition and constantly evolving i'm open i've been a psychotherapist for over 30 years i wrote a book you know my mission is to walk alongside people who love someone or care about someone who struggles with substance use issues and mental health challenges and um so that's a part of what i do but who i am is is so much bigger just like all of us all of your listeners and you we are these amazing beings in this beautiful expanding universe and so part yeah. of my mission is to help other people remember that when we're going through the the toughest most harrowing times 
whenever I'm doing a retreat or something and everyone, we're meeting everyone, I, I make a point to never find out what people do. Um, <laughs> and it's great because I need to see them as people. And it came full circle re- recently. It was a couple a retreat from a couple years ago. There's a lovely couple there and we got to know each other and a year or two passed. And then later on, uh, through like someone else, I learned that they run a record label. I didn't know they're in the music industry. It didn't matter at the time. And now we ended up working together. But it's like, I love that we met first on the terms of just person to person. And uh, story. it's the way to do it. So I'm assuming your vested interest in addiction and mental health issues is personal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and judging by your book, it is. So, I mean, it seems like you're safe to share a bit about that. And uh, maybe you could just tell us why you wrote this book or why this subject matter? I'd love to, even though it's a hard story about, let's see, it's 2022. So 11 years ago, my beloved husband died from brain cancer and I had two teenage sons at the time. They're now in their twenties, but you know, we were all grieving and in different ways as grief goes, because it's not in a straight line as we know, and has varying forms. And my sons, after my husband passed, their their stepdad, it impacted them so much more greatly than I expected because we had known in advance. And sometimes that helps people, mm. you know, to sort of prepare. And we thought we sort we kind of had. But anyway, long story short, within a few months, they started turning to drugs and alcohol as an answer to their pain. And they had tremendous pain they didn't talk to me about because as a new single mother, they wanted to to care for me. They're really sensitive, kind people, and they wanted to care for me. So even though we would talk openly and how are you doing, what's happening, and we they would give me so much, they were still struggling. And so they turned to each other in a new way, and together they turned to drugs. And within about four years, they were addicted to methamphetamines and stimulants of varying kinds, Coke, you know, whatever they could get, Adderall. And so the journey was really, really rough. And when my husband was passing in that time of his decline, I started pooling all the resources I had as a therapist that I'd used and, and helped other people with for, for years and years. But there really wasn't a body of knowledge, you know, Krishna or listeners, there wasn't really a body of work, yeah. one resource that I could turn to for bravery through grief, through substance use issues. And my sons both had tremendous mental health challenges too. They had really severe ADD or attention deficit issues, and they were really impulsive. And so um, I had this stack of like 11 books and poetry and spiritual stuff, and it just was exhausting trying to do that and therapy and read read everything I could. And I would do my meditation and yoga and so forth. But I was really, I hit, I hit a rock bottom where I just said, I can't do this. And then as Grace would have it, I remembered what Cheryl Strayed, who wrote Wild, had said, which is that we parents don't have the luxury of despair. And really then I became able to see my essence, to connect with God, the universe, the Tao, and to connect with other authentic people for help. And I asked for help in a different way Mm. with strength and tenderness. And instead of trying to manage everything, I started being more tenderly, compassionately open to both of my son's pain and my own. 
And um, it's hard to talk about because it's, it is so personal, but it's important to talk about because just today I posted that one of the bravest thing we, one of the bravest things we can do is ask for help. And so we all teamed up and decided what would happen. And my sons did some intensive therapy in the wilderness and oh, learned yeah? how to start their own fires and learned how to do, how to not be attached to any screens for three months at a time. And, you know, they were out among the stars and with peers and faced hard truths about themselves and our family and told me what they needed from me, how I needed to work on myself. Mm. You know, simultaneously, I saw some of that too, that I needed to change. Our family had a systemic problem. It wasn't just them turning to drugs and alcohol. It was ancestors who had done that and ancestors who had mental health challenges and so much more trauma and all this stuff started coming out. And so basically it was a gift, you know, a lot of our own pain and suffering that we encounter, not all of it ends up being a gift. And so that's my story. And and I've um, since then, as as bumpy as my path has been (laughs) and as imperfect, I choose to, to speak up and help others. And I have clients and I have people who DM me, it seems like almost every day, who want different answers than they've been getting. So I wrote a book that is very practical and also spiritual. And it, it incorporates the very basics of what we need to reset our nervous system when we feel gripping fear, when we don't know what to do and we're frozen or we're um, immobilized by by panic, right? And so how to reset, and it has a lot to do with all, this, all the things you teach and everything that you do. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mm. mean, I, it's, it's frustrating on one level, you know, as humans, how we need sometimes such strong medicine to affect change. Yeah. You know, you try to think like, well, could you have changed as a family and as each individual's with something maybe a little less seismic? than the death like that of a partner about as bad as it gets. Um, and I don't know, you know, I'm guessing probably not just speaking for my own life. And, and that's like, I look sometimes out at people. I often say things like, you know, I look out at this room and I'm, what I really see is a lot of brave souls because deep down amidst beneath all of our stories, it takes a lot of bravery to just do what we do in modern life. And as you're saying, if if you if you choose to believe that we're here to have experiences, then it's 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 hard to accept that the way we grow and change is through some pretty big fires. And in that way, do you feel like there's a necessary element of accepting that mantle of uh, I don't know if I want to say the warrior energy or but whatever that what does conscious bravery in a sense mean to you? You know, like it seems like it's a conscious choice in a sense, of owning yeah. something. Yes, I love the way you said that, accepting that mantle and and how to be brave. Yeah, consciousness is a word that people define all different ways, but I define it as having awake, alert awareness in any given moment. So it's not just what we have when we're having these ecstatic experiences. It's that presence and awareness we have even amidst the devastation, even when our, our sympathetic nervous system is activated and we want to fight or free, flee or curl up in a ball and feign death, you know, or fawn. So those are the four 
capacities. We need conscious bravery all the time. As you're saying, it's underneath everything just to sometimes get out of the bed in the morning after a bad dream or to deal with Mm -hmm. several things that have happened at once in a day that's filled with the unexpected. And so for me, consciousness is that. It's that capacity to be right here, right now. And bravery is having, well, conscious bravery is having the awareness to see whatever's needed in any given moment, and then do it. So to me, conscious bravery is something that we all need because it's active. We take action. We don't just intend or affirm what we're going to do, which is helpful too, but we embody it. You know, We stand in our truth and we move forward, even if it's hard. Well, and I e- easier said you. than done. Yeah, right. It's. <laughs> uh, I mean, what what about when people are like, I don't know what to do. I just feel like in a morass of loss or grief, or or they just don't know. They want to take action, but they don't know what to do. Exactly. Beautiful question. We sit with that, and what I teach in my book, I have a chapter called "Now There's This." That confusion and I don't know is a very brave stance to be able to say. I don't know, but I'm right here with that. Now there's this, now there's this unknowing. And I've been there plenty of times. All of us have. And isn't it true that when we're really the most truthful with ourselves and we're able to bring compassion to that unknowing, that then answers start coming to us little by little, options at least. Yeah. It's so uncomfortable though, you know, like sitting with not knowing or sitting with that feeling of dis-ease or whatever it is, it's very, it's, I can understand probably why your sons were looking for ways to shift that feeling. Um, and I, as a side note, I'm curious, like if you talked about ADHD, did any of them feel they slipped into this through medication they were prescribed or was it nothing like that? Yes. And I want to come back to the the concept of unknowing and that dis-ease. But yes, they both, you know, they were both um, using both alcohol and hallucinogens and stimulants on their own. And so it was about eight months, I think, Krishna, after their stepdad had passed, my my husband had died. And they said, you know, we both, they just had a little meeting with me and they said, we both think we need ADHD medication. Hmm. And we had been kind of like not a non-medicating family. I mean, I saw it sort of as a last resort for my clients when they tried other things, exercise, healthy eating, um, meditation, yoga, all the things. But um, some people need medication and it works really better, much better. But at any rate, they said, we want this and we really feel we've needed it. We've tried other things. We're we're grieving, but our brains are racing. So they got prescribed Vyvanse, which is a scheduled one drug similar to Adderall. And then they immediately doubled it. And their doctor, after two weeks, he, they both came back to the doctor and their their doctor said, wow, you guys are pioneers. I guess you knew what you needed. And I look back on that and I think, holy moly, that was a doctor who did not understand the beginnings of substance use disorder, which mm-hmm. is what we call it in my profession. I don't like the word addiction or addict because I think it's a label. But at any rate, here were these Guys who were prescribed 40 milligrams and they doubled it to 80. Wow. Teenagers on their own. And their doctor said, okay, well, let's try that. And I wish I had known better as a parent to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Let's put on the brakes and let's just look at what is this about. But I was in a cloud. And so I didn't know what I didn't know. 
Mm. That's part of why I wrote a chapter coming back full circle to what you said a few minutes ago on becoming comfortable with discomfort. I think that I was avoiding discomfort. I think when they said we need 80 milligrams, I said, wow, that makes my life easier. If they know what they need, great. That feels better right here. But I wish I had stayed with the discomfort longer. And so now wishing doesn't do any good, but but hindsight does. Now I pause longer and I say, mm. wow, I'm really uncomfortable. Hmm, I'm listening to my heart on this. I'm listening to my mind. My body is feeling irritable and itchy. You know, I have like a lot of us have a quirk in our senses that tunes in, maybe when to pick our fingernails or maybe we grab our ear, we do something like scratch our chin. That's a physical sensation that arises because of some discomfort in our bodies that we want to listen to. And so I do a lot of somatic work, you know, body work with my clients, asking them, hey, you just did this. Like some people will do this without thinking. That's a symbol of wiping a tear. What I'm doing is what in case our listeners can't see me that I'm almost as if I'm wiping a tear off my face with Um, a finger. And so if we're having these experiences, we've got to ask what's going on with non-judgment, with the strength of compassion and say, what am I feeling? So yeah, they, they had to learn how to become a lot more comfortable with discomfort. They're still learning. And, and I have learned when I'm uncomfortable, I say, usually this is a shift that's about to happen. I better pay attention. (laughs) Mm. Well, and Tell me a little bit more about their recovery and process, because I'm really interested in this piece about the nature. Where did they go to do that? Yes. One of them went, these are great programs, by the way, and they do have financial assistance. But, you know, I pulled it out of my savings because I thought at the time I had two colleagues who said wilderness therapy is the best thing for teenage boys. And so they went to wilderness therapy. One went to Open Sky in Durango, Colorado. I love that one. Yeah. It's yeah. a great program. And the other one went to my friend, Brad Reedy, who's in Utah. I love Brad Reedy. Um, and thankfully, his program is now called Evoke. And he went to that program. And um, they both went to sober. Well, they both both went to forms of sober programs afterward. They were so young that they didn't, there wasn't a lot available. And so I tell parents, if you can figure out a way to work on yourself and your family while your loved one is in the wilderness, in nature, or in some program where they're doing gardening. You know, there was another program where they, one of them could have gone to work on a farm and and do farming for a while. Mm. He didn't want to do that. So I didn't make him, I wanted their buy-in. But, um, you know, if you can get into a situation that's kind of removed from what you've been doing, but really totally connected. Like we were doing family letters all the time, sending letters back and forth to each other, family therapy over the phone and stuff. And so I had to work on myself. A lot was required and they really worked on themselves and they, they were doing, I mean, Norman from open sky was doing this amazing, these amazing meditations out with them. They had yoga out on the ground. They were cold. They learned how to deal with the discomfort of Huge windstorms, yeah. putting up shelters in the middle of windstorms and cold temperatures and sleeping and turning to peers who were so real, Krishna, with them. Those peers knew them better than I did. You know, one of them had a ceremony. I write about this in the book, Conscious Bravery. But one of them had a ceremony at the end in this cool teepee, you know, with sage and stuff. And the peers stood up when he was graduating and said, this is what we know and love about you. This is what we know and we're 
concerned about you. And they passed the stick around and they said things that were even more real than what I knew about my son. It's awesome. Yeah. Was that in Southern Utah? The, the evoke one? Yes. Cause I have some land down there. I spent a lot of time in Southern Utah and I know a lot of people who do these sorts of programs down there. And awesome. It's an amazing landscape. Really, really powerful. Yeah. It's a great way to partner with, the land and gr- do grounding. And I teach a, pr- a practice I call earth and sky, where we reach down, we stand barefoot. We reach down to the ground with one hand and one arm straight down and we reach up to the sky and we meet our hands through head space and heart space. And then opposite hand goes up to the universe or sky and the opposite hand down. And they learned, they didn't do that practice, but they did things that helped them to connect with what's greater for them and to really ground into the support of the earth beneath them. And so they're doing much better. And I think um, they've had a lot of bumps, though, over all these years. And treatment yeah. treatment is, I was talking with a new friend yesterday who's written a book called The Right Rehab. And we were talking about how there are so many people who don't have resources for wilderness therapy. So I have a, in the back of my book, I have a resources list. So those of you who are listening, if you are interested in wilderness, but you can't afford it, email me and let's see what we can do. Cause maybe I can connect you with somebody that can either help or you can find a different kind of program. Cause it's a lot about the haves and haves not have nots, unfortunately, sometimes. Yeah. And that's just wrong. It's an archaic system that needs to change. But at any rate, there are other things besides wilderness therapy. They've both done a variety of things. And one of them is service. You know, Mm -hmm. serving other people can save you. (laughs) Right. It sort of brings you out of the sense of separateness of the individual in a natural way. But our lives are so siloed, especially digitally, that it can really create a kind of sickness. Yes. Um, so yeah. well said, true. Yeah, but you were talking about uh, sort of sitting with things, and I and I noticed you you're mentioning you're not as fond of the word mindfulness, but I often call it like the witness. But what is it about that you don't like? Because it seems that is a key part of stepping outside of your dreams. Sometimes your story. Absolutely. Oh, I love the concept of mindfulness and stepping out of our dream or story. Absolutely. With wide awake awareness. But I like to call it whole being awareness because mindfulness conjures the mind mind as if the mind is the answer. The mind is usually the source of our problems. You know, we Mm -hmm. ruminate, we mull over stuff and we get stuck in the past or we fixate on the future. But whole being awareness gives us exactly what you just mentioned, the capacity to energetically move into the space immediately around us or into the layers, into the depths of awareness that are available to us that can come into our beings when we're open and say, hey, wake up, look at this. You didn't realize this. And we might have that realization, you know, in our hearts or it might come into our minds, or it might come into our bodies, or we might vibe with an energetic rhythm that, that kind of shakes us up and says, hey, you haven't even looked at this. What about this? Or it might come into what I call our essence, you know, the deepest soulful part of us, our self with capital S, if you will. But I like the elegant word essence because I don't think it's as laden with as much I don't know, dogma or meaning to other people. But yes, we have to have some sort of witness, some other person or other energetic 
field or a connection to the divine beloved, whatever you want to call it, that kind of helps us to see it is time to embrace change instead of fear it. Do this thing. Try this idea out. Talk to this person. Go meet with this group. Go drum. Play, go play an instrument. You haven't done that in forever. You know, go sit in cold water and become become a little more comfortable with it day by day. These are all things that jog our systems that help us say, hey, change is right here. I better mm. get get better at it. <laughs> Seems like addiction in some ways is always a message for change, perhaps. It could be viewed that way. It is. Yeah. And it's not. I love the way you said that. I'm going to remember that. A message for change. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thinking about like uh, the more uh, sort of smaller addictions in our lives that we just we roll with all the time, whether it's our phones, um, whatever it is, and what kind of change that's asking for. Because there's so many addictions that are, are they, might, they might feel benign, but are they? You know, and, and we can live with them for years and years, maybe our whole lives. Um, and what kind of messages are, are lying in waiting, in a sense? Great question. I love it. What kinds of messages are lying in waiting for us? And that's what conscious awareness does in whole being awareness and to become comfortable in the moment, more comfortable. I don't know if we can ever be very comfortable, but become more comfortable in the now so that we can receive these messages for change and ask, because we all are addicted to various things or, or we're compulsive about things. I'm compulsive about chocolate. I'm compulsive about green tea. You know, I think they're so healthy, but you know, I got to take a real hard look at that some days <laughs> when I've eaten a whole bar of 85% chocolate instead of just, a, you know, a little. So what am I doing? What's underneath that? What am I experiencing? Why am I doing these things? What patterns am I trying to establish? You know, routines are great, but we want to be able to have flow with our routines. And that's one of the things that the research shows neurobiologically prevents Alzheimer's and helps us to rewire our brains when we have addictions. We rewire by doing new things differently, staying with the discomfort long enough that the water quits running down the rent the Grand Canyon, as my friend Kevin McCauley would say, and starts trickling down this new little, this new little path. And then we keep doing something new that's uncomfortable. And then over time, it becomes more, more what makes sense. Yeah. Well, bringing like a full being awareness, uh, you're talking about your body and your mind and uh, your essence. And it, it's, it just seems like a pathway through supporting people who are going through substance abuse or I suppose yourself, or I mean, I would suppose conscious bravery, this, this notion would apply to just tumultuous situations in your life. But it, it seems more than anything, though, it would require practices for you to, to learn the awareness of these different mechanisms. I mean, that's an old story of like, you got to bring in practice, right? You have to not just think your way out of it or necessarily medicate your way out of it. I guess that might be a short-term fix, but more than anything, it does seem like it takes a whole body approach, which you is an anecdote it. to our modern lives too. Mm -hmm. Yes. No, you got it. Um, practice as with anything as a musician, 
you know, you began trying certain things out and you practiced them and you became more skilled. Any of us, anything that we want to want to become better at, we have to practice. So we practice bravery or conscious bravery in the calmer moments, all along the continuum in the toughest moments, amidst grief, amidst job loss, amidst change, breakups, and even in the most harrowing, devastating moments. But it becomes instinctual for sure. I've learned this the hard way. It totally becomes instinctual if I've practiced in all those kinds of times, even when I don't really want to, (laughs) even if I say, I know the rightest thing to do right now and the next right step would actually be to be kind. And so I might pause and breathe and then I might try, try to have compassion for myself and then I can offer kindness for the other person. That's conscious bravery too. You know, I like to say that conscious bravery isn't always tough as nails. It can sound like stillness. It can look like silence. Yeah, yeah. What kind of message do you have for people uh, when they're feeling suicidal ideation, or like not even wanting to be here? There's, they don't even want to have the effort to change anymore. That's a great one because um, I worked with so many people with depression, and, and it's very unique to every every person. But for some people. It, it involves a certain amount of preparation and knowing that that's part of their story. That's part of what they do when they get that depressed. So mm-hmm. to know in advance helps us. If we tend to say, okay, my life's not worth living. I'm going to carry out this plan. We, we want to prevent it before we get to kind of the, the eight on that continuum that goes up to 10. And so I teach um, this kind of know your ABCs, have an awareness of your behavior and your thoughts and your emotions on a continuum so that if you're starting to say this, this life isn't worth living, I am so hopeless. We maybe say, okay, here I am. This is the part of my story where I say I'm hopeless mm. and I feel this. And we bring compassion to that. And we maybe give ourselves a hug, put our hand right here and say, I'm right here. And maybe we reach out to a friend, like you obviously are a person that is, can, op- can people can open up to really easily. So turn to someone with whom you can open up who won't judge you and say, hey, m- you know, make that call. And, and it's hard to make that call unless we've made that call before when it's not so hard. And mm. so we want to have this practice of connecting with each other and not being isolated and alone so that in the devastations, we can more easily say, I need you, man. And so that's one way, you know, we, we be there for ourselves. But, you know, maybe we have a phone number programmed into our phone of somebody. If, the, if I say that one time, I'm going to call somebody. Maybe I call my shaman. Maybe I call my therapist. Maybe I call my acupuncturist. And I just say, hey, can, can you sit with me for a minute? This is really a tough moment. Because there's this authentic connection, right, Krishna? I mean, we're not in this alone. We think we are. But so I found this on the street, which was, was kind of pyramid. It's just oh, a, a piece of wood oh. that's a triangle. But I believe that we want to turn to ourselves. We turn to authentic others and we turn to something greater. And most of us usually rely on only one or two at a time of those. You know, we, we rely on ourselves. Maybe we turn to somebody else or we rely on ourselves. Maybe we pray or we meditate. But really, this triangle, when we lay it down flat, it's only truly supportive when we have a connection with all three. And so I call it the triad of connection. And so we have to become skilled, as you were saying, practiced. I'm so passionate about this. Practice at connecting with one another 
and not being in isolation. That's why I love your drumming circles and everything you do with, or not drumming circles, pardon me, your music circles and your collectives. Because that's where people are sitting with one another, breathing and feeling not just themselves and having these awakenings, but we're feeling each other. Yeah, group experiences, we're losing that in a lot of ways. They become, uh, I mean, I'm imagining that would be the anecdote to being afraid of the future is feeling you're not alone. Absolutely. Feeling you're not alone, you always have yourself. You know, we come into this world kind of alone. I mean, somebody usually helps us out of our mother's body, but um, we come into this world alone and we kind of go out of it. We have that moment of truth. I've had the honor of being next to four people when they were dying. And it's, wow, what a sacred experience. Four people I loved, two of whom were my parents. One was my husband. And um, when they're actually going, there is some there's no word for it, but there's some journey they're experiencing in those last few moments where I believe they're connecting with something greater, but they're doing it no longer with with me right there. At least that's the experience I had. I don't know about other people. Mm. And so we want to become comfortable being with ourselves. We are amazing, beautiful beings, you know, and this life is such a precious gift. And it may sound trite, but it truly is. And so if we know that, then we can actually connect with one another better. I can connect with you and I've just met you because you're this beautiful being that I know I'm authentically connected to. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you just think about how much addiction there is these days and how much fear and and how that fear is is ginned up. It's it's a currency too for um, a lot of the you know, a lot of money is tied into fear as a way of keeping our attention. And mm-hmm. it's so easy for us. It's like candy in a way mm-hmm. that we just like, yeah, that feels familiar. Or I know what that is in a way. I'll lean into the, the fear. And it's strange. I mean, I mean, I guess it goes back to our animalistic limbic brains or something, but it is a natural flow. Uh, but we have to sometimes lean into, especially when the dominant story coming at us is one of fear to create a counter story of our own truths and maybe really being honest about what isn't full of anxiety in our lives, perhaps, or like what is just, you know, at stasis or something. And we just ignore those things in a way or finding where the stable ground is. Um, And so these are definitely skills that I think are important as we move forward as a people in a time that's so ungrounded and I'm imagining it will continue to be that way. Uh, so I'm, it's tough to hear that, you know, your own family went through addiction in a sense, almost in a sanctioned way. And that's a very common story with opioids too now. And so many other ways. And think of all the sanctioned ways that we don't think of as so nefarious. Like uh, whatever, whatever it is you can't stop doing and don't feel you have control over whether it's gaming or in Instagram or I don't know what it is, but it's like, you know, it probably isn't that positive in your life. Or you're just not even connecting the dots to your mood or, or what's going on in your life. Uh, you might feel out of control. So a lot of this feels like reclaiming volition and, you know, what you do choose and recognizing what you do, even amidst everything coming at us. Absolutely. I love everything you said. And there are people out there who say it all differently. 
but like Annie Grace, she's got a book. Um, it's called The Naked Mind. Uh, Kevin McCauley has talked us with us and people like, um, oh, I'm forgetting, but there are so many people doing research in, in the neuroscience fields and in the spiritual fields, and they're, they're starting to merge so that we're seeing that truth involves a commitment to change, like you're saying, I think, and practicing change, but also being open to, hey, maybe, maybe I'm doing this because my brain has become dependent upon it. My, my brain could be faulty. My body is dependent upon it. I mean, I've worked with lots, lots and lots of people and seen so many people who actually craving is a real thing. Craving is not just, oh, I wish I really had this drug. It, there's a physical, biological, yeah. physiological, how can I say that right now? Physiological craving for a drug or substance. And so what do people do to work past that? Well, lots of people need medication to work through that. And so I'm a big believer in medication-supported um, abstinence for a period of time, at least, to help people get to where their brains are functioning more appropriately so they can make better choices. You know? Yeah. I mean, you just think about the basics, too, like you said, like the the power of nature things that are, were probably part of our lives forever and maybe aren't at all right now or just your diet or your sleep or your support group or your friends you know what you're inputting in is information it's like we got to get these things in order to really start otherwise you're just swimming upstream in a sense and it can be it's like asking sometimes a fish what water is when your whole life you might not even recognize i mean how do you know I bet your sons didn't even know what kind of benefits they might gain from those experiences because they've never done it, is my guess. <laughs> they've never, you know, so sleeping true. on the ground and resourcing and dealing, you know, it's it's an amazing gifts. Yes. Ah, oh, I love everything, too, that you mentioned, the nutrition, our bodies, because I was always a healthy eater and we ate even more healthily when my husband was dying. Um Kind of, he called it the anti-cancer diet, you know, a lot of greens, every single meal, all of that, a lot of lean protein and all kinds of other things. But my sons finally chose healthier eating because it started to make sense to them once mm. they were free from some of the former impulsive choices. Right. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. Well, so the book's out, Conscious Bravery. I mean, is there any other concepts you think it's important for us to touch on? I know there's many other things in here, but in general, you know, yeah, the, the pillars of conscious bravery are to breathe consciously, to really know who we truly are, that we're more than our situation or our circumstance, mm -hmm. that we are this essence, like you and I talked about in the beginning, we are not our roles and our titles and even what we're good at. We are something greater and more expansive. And, and then to, um, to be able to have the capacity to become more comfortable with discomfort. And hmm. that's a separate pillar and also to ask for help. But I, I don't know if readers know what I mean by conscious breathing. So super quickly, not readers, listeners, um, every now and then my brain does that listeners, uh, and people on who, who are with us right here, who are maybe on a break. And if you're really taking this in and you have a second, if you can maybe just breathe into your whole being, into your heart, into your mind, into your body, into your energy space and into your essence, and then exhale from all those places. 
and then maybe see if any one of them is speaking to you more loudly or with more um, grabbing your attention than another one and see if your body is talking to you, then listen and just pause and breathe into maybe a place in your body. Maybe you have tightness in the back of your neck or maybe exhale from your mind and release something that you're clinging to that you really want to hold on to, but you know it's really not helpful, you know, because we have these knowings. So conscious breathing is, is a gift and it's not just taking three deep breaths. It's actually, people might call it mindfulness, taking mindful breaths, breaths, but I like to call it whole being awareness breaths. As you talked about, you know, you witness, you witness yourself breathing in and you witness what's happening as you exhale. There's tremendous power to either calm our nervous system or elevate our nervous system as needed. If we just take the time to breathe consciously a little bit throughout the day. Well, thank you for that. That's, yeah, mm-hmm. it's always, that's a big one. Just, mm-hmm. just breathing and breathing consciously uh, can bring so much, so much to our lives. So thank you. Mm, sure. Well, I'll put this uh, link in the show notes and uh, appreciate you sharing your time. And thank you for, uh, you know, diving into this a little more. Oh, it's really my pleasure. Thank you so much. And if anybody wants to find me aside from the book, on, and you can get it on Amazon, you can get it on my website. My website is PamelaBrinker.com. And please feel free to reach out to me. Cool. Thanks, Pamela. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Pamela, for coming on and for uh, allowing us to dive into the subject more. We really appreciate it. Her links are in the show notes. This song that you're hearing in the background is called Angel's Rest, and it is from the uh, much, (laughs) I was going to say long, much released long ago. It's a way of saying older album called Crystal Starship. Uh, And that was was a ceremony, one of my older ceremonies recorded at our our dear friends at the farm, upstate New York. Um, it was a beautiful little experience, and now it's called. We call the. We used to call the farm the Crystal Starship, so that's why it's titled that. Uh, and this song's called "Angels Rest." I play that song live sometimes, but it's completely different with lots more layers and beats. But this is how it all began. Um, thanks again for all the support. For saying hello, check out our Patreon. It's a great way to support. Patreon.com slash East Forest. Until then, you keep walking your walk. Don't take any shit, but if you do, do it with grace. <laughs>